It's really good to be here uh, with you guys today. It's good to be a part of what God's doing through this church and just being, just being able to see how He works in, in unique and, and amazing ways. This church is um, a tremendous picture of a church that's desiring to send and be engaged as a mobilized church in the world. It's a, it's, I'll, I'll be honest with you, I've never been in a church quite like it before, so uh, it's, it's, a, it's exciting to see how many people that they're, they're sending and how many people that you desire, desire to send. It's, it's exciting to see that happen. What God is doing in and through this church is, is pretty, pretty awesome. Um, just kind of give you a little bit of history. Is it going? Nope. Well, there he goes. Um, they're probably manually doing it. I'm reaching up here to manually do it. So <laughs> just to give you a little background, my wife and I, um, we served in Siberia, Russia, uh, and one of the things as, as, as one of the things for us was a big challenge was like just, just trying to find a way to get out there. We, were, we desired to work among, among a people group, and one of the things we did is when you try to figure out like what a people group is today, a lot of people go to things like Joshua Project or, or different kind of access to see where are the unreached people groups at. Back when we were looking uh, at unreached people groups, that there was a Joshua Project out there, um, but there was really no other information on anything else that you could get. And so we had been led by the Lord to specifically reach a people group called the Buryats. Now, you may not have ever heard of them before, but we had been researching, and God had just done some kind of unique things to bring us to see the Buryats reach for the gospel. And so we actually went around looking for teammates, desperately seeking somebody who would come and join us, um, going to this place in, in, in the middle of nowhere at that time, uh, just after the fall of the Soviet Union, wasn't a popular place to go. And so we, we, we felt like the Lord was leading us that way and that we would get out there and God would eventually provide us with teammates as we went out there. So we went out, but going out by yourself is something that was new for me. We had arrived in, in Russia. Um, I didn't know very much about the country. I just knew that was where they lived in this place called Buryatia. I had an encyclopedia, which is something that for you, you guys in college, you know, it's a, it's a book with paper and things like that. And it's, it's, it's in a museum somewhere here. But as you go out there, there are these things, and you'd look it up, and you'd see there was a little, little picture of a Buryat guy and a little paragraph saying this is where they live. They lived in this place called Buryatia. So what could go wrong with that, right? You, know, you just know, go to the place called Buryatia. So we got to Russia. We were living there for a little bit. My wife, uh, we just had a baby, as you see right there, and, which is a perfect time to go. So you're just thinking, like, <laughs> we're going to head out there. So... Um, so we, we, we were at this place in this one town, and I had to go on a train from where we were at in Pliskotezhevsk to Moscow, and then from Moscow out to Ulan-Ude, Buryatia. And so I got on this train, took everything we owned. I don't know what all you think of what you own, but everything we owned at the time was eight duffel bags in the world. And so we're taking these eight duffel bags. I went off by myself. My wife stayed back. And as I got out to this town in Moscow, I had been told that the train station was right next to the one train station. However, people didn't tell me that that was a kilometer and a half, almost a mile away from the other train station. So I had to take these eight duffel bags and run them to the other side and then come back. And so I'm like, oh man. So I'm standing out there trying to think what to do. And I, I saw this guy that was drunk. He was sitting there and I said, hey, watch my bags. So I tore a bill in half, watch my bags. I'm gonna take two across at a time. So I ran two back over and I ran over to the other side, found another guy that was drunk. It was, it was easy to find. It wasn't like a hard thing to do in Russia. And so, like, you had to go out there, and I found this other guy, and I gave him a tour bill in half and gave him it, and I ran the bags across. I had asked for one thing, because I didn't know how to get a train from where I was going to go to, which it seems simple, right? How do you do this in a country you've never really been to before? How do you get that train to go to where I wanted to go in Siberia? And so I asked what help from somebody, and they brought a, a kid came out to translate for me. And he was 15, and he was out there, and we're standing by this train as I'm, with all my bags and waiting for this guy to come in. And, the, 
And I, I kind of said, like, what's going to happen? He says, the train's going to back up, you're going to put your bags on, and then you're going to leave. I'm like, what could go wrong with that? So here you're sitting out there thinking, and this, as, as I'm standing there, the train starts to back up, and people start crowding this one spot where I'm at. I'm thinking, you know, I like space anyways, and so I'm thinking, come on. They, and then people start ripping into my bag and trying to grab things out of it. So you're like slapping hands and thinking, hey, and as the train backed up, the door opens up, and I looked at this guy, and he just said, put them on. It's like, okay. So I started running in there to put them on, and people was chaos. But I played rugby in college a little bit, so I thought, I can do this part here. This is like a physical thing. So, I can run, so I'm like running in there, throwing my bags in there, pushing people back, and running my bags in there. And I was like proud of myself. I did it. I did you know, A of, all the way through Z of things I have to do, but A, A, I did it. I'm on the train. And as I'm standing there, this guy walks up to me, and looks at me, and starts to scream. He has a uniform on. He starts to scream at me and yelling at me. And I said, uh, I have tickets, tickets to Ulan Day. And he takes the tickets, rips them in half, throws them in the air, and yells to these other guys, throw his bags off the train. And he starts throwing my bags off the train. One of the bags like, goes between the wheels of the train tracks. And I'm standing there thinking, looking at this translator, I said, hey, tell them I have, I have tickets to Buryatia, to Ulan Day." And so he says something, and the guy says something back to him. And I said, what did he say? And he said, I can't tell you. I'm like, you're my translator. He goes, but I'm a Christian. I can't say those words. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so, and he says to me, he goes, I'm sorry, I have to go. And he leaves. And I'm like... Okay, so I'm trying to think, what do I do? How do I explain this? And just as I'm standing by the door of the train car, a guy grabs the back of my hair and pulled me off the train really hard. And I'm like, whoa. And he starts pulling me, and he pulls out a badge, puts it in my face, and puts it back in his pocket. It was so fast, I couldn't read it. I couldn't really read Russian at the time anyways. It wouldn't have helped. But he did that really fast to me, popped it back in there, and starts grabbing my hair and dragging me away from the train, away from all, all, all my bags. And so I'm thinking... First off, I started like, resisting and thinking, I guess this is how missions ends. You, know, you have all these ideas to go out and do this thing, and this is kind of how it ends. This is the, this is the Lord. So, you know, and, what, and everything we owned was in this. Like, we had a brand new baby, and they told us there was, no, there was no food for babies. That was true. There was no fruits and vegetables. That was actually true. We, we would find out, find out later on. So everything in there was all these dried up things we'd have for at least a time until we could find a way to help feed our kid. And so we're thinking, man, alive. And I'm, I'm walking out of this... I'm walking back thinking, I don't know what to do. We start walking into a crowd of people. And there's a lot of people. We start walking into this crowd, and he, he quit pulling my hair, by the way, uh, at that point. We were just walking together with them, and we started walking through the crowd, and pretty soon they noticed that I was not from there, and I wasn't dressed like they were, and so they suddenly started getting angry. You know, get out of here, pushing me back. And this guy pulls up the badge again and does this. And Moses parting the Red Sea, it was just like that. It was like, whoa. And I'm thinking, oh, man. Like, they read Russian, you know, so they know what this guy is. <laughs> I'm going to train jail right now. So, so I get up there, and I walk all the way into this place. We walk up to this, this door, this, this window where this lady was, and she, was, she saw me coming towards her. Not willingly, but I was coming towards her. And she looks at me and starts screaming at me, like, get back, get back in line. And this guy walks up to the window, puts his badge up against the window. Now, get this, he never says one word to me puts the badge up against the window, pops it back into his pocket, and she looks terrified, runs out of the room, and he, he liked to pull hair. He grabbed her hair, and he just shook it and yelled at her and like, almost like threw her down, and then walked away. And I'm like, whoa, what happened? And, and also, everybody runs. You know, and I'm like, okay. And then this guy doesn't say anything to me, he just walks off, like leaves. And so I'm standing there thinking, what happened? And... Uh, I, you know, I counted to 10 or whatever you used to do at train jail. I, I did the thing, and then I said, okay, I'm going to move forward. So I start to get ready to go. I run back to the train thinking I'll salvage what I can from the bags. 
I'll try to get, find out what's going to happen. He, I can't get on this train. I get back there, and the man who'd been yelling at me and swearing at me is holding my torn tickets and says, he holds them up in the air, and he says, what's your name? I says, Greg. And he said, Greg, I didn't know. And then he says, there's your bags. They're all there. Nothing's been touched. And the guys who threw them off were like, I'm like, eh. And then I run in to get in the car. I hop on this train, run down to get on this train, and the train starts to move. It was literally actually moving when he was, this is happening. I'm running on, the train's moving. I'm jumping on the car, hopping in there. And now for the next five and a half days, I'm going to go across Siberia. And I'm sitting here thinking, like, what literally just happened? Like, what happened? But what began to happen to me was everything had been to change. A European Russia was changing into an Asian part of the world. I, I didn't know totally what it was like to be among the Buryats. I didn't know what it really was like. I, read, I had the little encyclopedia thing in my mind, this one little picture, but I didn't know what it would be like. I didn't know it would be like this. I didn't know, I knew there was Tibetan Buddhist, but I didn't understand what that really meant. But what I didn't understand also was, what is it like to walk into a place that's like this? This is what we walked into. There's a quote here, I love this quote, it's from uh, W.L. Elliston from OMF in 1879. He writes this, No one knows what it is to face a city that has never heard of Christ before, with no friends near until they try it. One lesson that comes to me is the absolute importance of, con of utter consecration to Jesus, leaving all with him, life, death, health, comfort, family. May God give us strength. It's a good picture, because as I sat there, I'm thinking to myself, I had this responsibility of this lady that I love and this little baby that I absolutely love too, and I have to take care of them. I had this responsibility in my mind that I have to keep my baby alive, and I have to feed my baby. I have to make sure I'm a father and I'm a husband. My responsibility is to do all these things. And then I get to this place, and I see this place. We literally land in Buryatia. It's now midnight, and I get off this train, and it's, I celebrated January 1st. Note to self, going to Siberia, June is way better than January, okay? So like, I'm getting there, I'm from Michigan, I get off the train, and I couldn't breathe. It's like, the wind is blasting me, like a 50 mile an hour wind, it's, it's like 50 to 60 degrees below zero. You're getting hit with this wind, and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm gonna die right here, right <laughs> here, boom, drop dead, just I can't breathe. So I get down, and I'm thinking, I have like two seconds to get my bags. So I run down to my bags, head down to this, this place where the bags are. I, this guy who had yelled at me is sitting on all my bags. And he says, grab my hand and says, Greg, good luck. And, I'm, and he hops on the train and he leaves. And as I'm standing there, one of the things that happened to me was my scarf, because the wind blew off. And I was like, okay, now it's midnight. I'm sitting here. There's no hotels, no places to stay. Nobody's going to meet me. Like, like, how do I, like, I don't even know where to go. And just as I'm standing there, a guy walks up to me. The first Buryat I would meet, he walks up to me. I turn around and he says, what are you doing? I was, what I didn't know was Buryatia was called a closed city. Up until a couple months before we got there, no foreigners were allowed there. So it was like the absolute alien of aliens arriving in land. I was the first foreigner in the Republic. Anybody even tried to register, we were the first ones there. And they get off this train, I'm standing, and this guy walks up and says, what are you doing here? And I'm like, I'm, in my broken language, I'm going to live here. And he says, why? And I'm like, I have no idea, actually, right now. I have no idea. But, you know, and so he just says... Like he's, so I'm standing there thinking, and he just starts grabbing my bags. We hooked all our bags together. It was all ice. Everywhere was ice. We put the bags on our shoulders. We start walking to, and I, I don't know where at first I'm walking, but I went to his little tiny place where he lived. And, as, and he, by the way, what he had done is as he turned around, he took off his scarf and put it around my neck. And I would learn this about uh, two years later. It's what you do to children. He literally tucked it in. He put it in my, and he, and he patted me like this. Like, and that's what I learned to do with my kids. 
He treated me like I was a child, and I was. And I sat back and I walked with this guy to his house. I walked into his little, little tiny house. There was no bathroom, outdoor bathrooms, no kitchen, nothing. He had this one little room. He had no clothes, basically nothing else in this, in this whole scarf or this uh, closet that he had there. And he had given me a scarf. I now feel like I'm a millionaire. I have eight bags of stuff. And I'm like, oh, here's your scarf. And he said, no, no, keep it. Remember me. So the next day, I found some things to get and to move into this area. And we found some other things. And I began to process that story, right, of that train thing. And it was as if the Lord said to me, Greg, you think you have to take care of your family? You think you have to keep your wife alive? You have to take care of your child? You know what? You can't even get on a train. You can't do anything without me. If you want to do this thing, you need to trust in me. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. We aren't able to do this task. Yesterday, one of the speakers was sharing a little bit about this is an impossible task. So missions, missions to these type of places in the world is absolutely impossible in our own strength. But the beauty of it is it's not in our strength. It's in his strength. He's the one who will do the task, not us. So you can't be as creative or, or like able to do everything. It's just allowing God to do those things. One of the things that I think is important for us to realize is as we, as we walk through and as we see how God works and God operates, he desires for us to know and help to define things in our own lives. And one of the things I want to do is take a, a second here to define some terminologies because we're using an awful lot of terms right now. And I just want to define terms so that you understand what I'm saying. This is not the end-all or be-all of all words that are used. So please feel free to not use what I say. But these are ways to help us understand a little bit about terminology. So we're going to talk about missions and missionaries. People groups, what are people groups? What does reached, unevangelized, and unreached mean? Unreached, unengaged, what is that even, unengaged? And uh, where missionary resources are generally being used, specifically in the world. And then finally, the goal of missions. That's kind of a, a way I want to walk through this thing and kind of enter into some of these aspects of it. There's a, um, John Piper has a, a description of when he talked about what is missions and what is a missionary. But before that, I want to read this quote from Andy Johnson. It's out of this book, Missions. Like, what is missions for our conversation today? It's not what is missions for your church all over. It's what does missions mean for this conversation that we're going to have right now. Missions is evangelism that takes the gospel across ethnic, linguistic, and geographic boundaries that gathers together a church and teaches them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. What missions is in this conversation is this task of actually going across nations across ethnic areas across linguistic places in the world to see a church established that will allow that ministry and that work to continue and flourish when you're long gone one of the things we would have hated to have seen in our own lives was to have done all that train ride and then 10 years later five years later there's nothing standing there's nothing that exists the other thing i want to talk about is two kinds of missionaries and this is this is, there's lots more, because I know churches support all kinds of missions, so let me just define it into two types of missionaries. There's, there's the one which we call the Timothy type, and then the Paul type. And the Timothy type is, is this picture of it. It's when we see the Apostle Paul, after he would plant some churches, he would send Timothy in to continue teaching these leaders and these elders of the churches to allow that church to become more stable and secure. That's, that's a great picture of what missions is, and that's a very valid way of doing missions. It's actually supporting the local churches that exist across the world. Like, there are places in the world where churches have been established, but they're weak, and they're, they're not strong enough, and you need missionaries to go in there and equip and change and challenge those churches. The second type, the second type of ministry or, or, or missions missionary that there is is the Paul type of missionary. Now, that's a, that's a different type. Paul actually had a really specific way of describing it for us, and so we'll, we'll read it here in this passage here in Romans 15. 
For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the, uh, by the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. As it is written, those who have never heard, have been told of, of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. This picture that the Apostle Paul is describing is a very specific niche in missions. It's actually saying, no, no, I love the role of, the, of, of, the, of Timothy, but I actually am going to go out in the role of Pauline role, where I'm going to say, this is my aspect. I'm going to go where Christ has never been proclaimed. My goal is to continue on. We actually read that in this account because not long after that, he talks about, as I'm passing through Rome, I'm on my way to Spain. He's actually talking about this continuation. He's already an old guy. He's already done a lot of things. He's like, I'm ready to keep moving. I'm not done here yet. He wants to continue moving forward. That's what the Apostle Paul describes as his aspect of missions. And that's what he wanted to be involved in. And so what I thought would be good for us to take a look at here is a little bit about like, what is a people group and how do we define those things? And, and like, what are some of the responsibilities and roles of that as far as people groups go? When Jesus is describing this, he's talking about people groups and languages. And one of the things that gets confusing is like, how many languages are there? Steve mentioned it a little bit ago. There's many as 16, 10,000. The numbers are all over the place when you get down to the numbers of people groups. I want you to think about one person. Because for me, I'm a science person, and you know what? When numbers get too big, you start doing zero, zero, dot, dot, to the tenth, of whatever it is, and you know, it's like, it just gets to be huge. Reality is, we're talking about people. People that we don't know, but who God does, who actually make a difference in this world, and God actually cares for them, even though we don't know them. So I know the numbers are huge. There's massive numbers of, of nations around the world, and where are they, and where are they involved in? The other aspect of this is, is what are the least reached? What do, we mean, what do we mean by that? And what does reached and unreached mean? So those are kind of aspects I want to talk about here. The first one I want to talk about is what is a people group? So for our definition, it's a common language, history, and customs. Meaning there's a unique language that these guys speak. They have a unique history that they start talking about the world from their perspective. And they have customs. They actually describe their worldview as a story that begins with them in the beginning. It usually does begin with them in the beginning. They're the significant characters. They're the story that it begins with. And so they'll tell their stories about how they began from their own perspective where it began. It's a unique group of people. It's kind of this picture for us to understand. It's the largest group of people that a group can gather in where the gospel can flow without encountering significant barriers because of culture and language. Meaning, meaning this, the gospel can only go so far and then no longer does that language spoken. Now it's another language. And for someone to actually take that step to go into that other language group, they have to do a phenomenal thing, an extraordinary thing, by going in and learning that language and that culture. Not an easy ask. A huge, huge challenge. Essentially, what is a people group? It's kind of the group that says, us and them. We are like this, and those guys are like that. Those guys are like that. That's kind of the aspect we want to talk about as far as what is a people group. Then I want to get into this area of reached, unreached, and unevangelized. I'm going to go through this very quickly. It's a simplistic picture, but it's this way. Reached people. Like, what are the reached peoples of the world? Well, a reached person, what I'm using by my definition, is a reached person means that people in the United States are reached. We would consider them as a reached people group. Now, does that mean that there are not people in Baton Rouge that are unevangelized? I was out last night. I'm one of those guys who got a flat tire. I saw some unevangelized people last night. I can just tell you that right now. 
And so there are definitely people that were unevangelized. And so what I would say is this, is there are definitely people, there are definitely people here in Baton Rouge that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the role of the church. That's our territory. That's our realm. That's what Paul's saying by talking about, I've been Illyricum all around to all these other areas of the world. That place wasn't all reached. They weren't all evangelized, but there were now churches established in those communities that could now take that responsibility. That's the responsibility of us, us, the church here in the U.S. We have the responsibility to reach those around us. We have the responsibility, whether you're in Sarasota like I am, I have the responsibility in Sarasota to reach those in Sarasota around me, or you guys in Baton Rouge to continue reaching those people around us. But those guys still qualify under this area of reached, but you and I both know, although the rest of the world says that, by the way, when you travel overseas, when I'm in when I lived in Russia, they believed every American was a Christian. I was like, most assuredly, we are not all Christians, but they believe it is because we're from this country that's Western, therefore we're all Christians. You and I both know they're not all Christians here. They desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're desperate for his message and his hope as well. But this other picture, it's these places called the unreached. Now, this is a, these are people groups that live around the world that if they wanted to know about Jesus, if they desperately wanted to know who Jesus Christ was, they couldn't. Because nobody speaks their language, understands their culture, and can communicate clearly enough in their language to share with them Christ. They're cut off. They're cut off for years, for centuries, for millennia at times. We're looking at these places of the world where absolutely nobody's been, to, been before. That's what it was for us among the Buryats. The first ones in there, this first responsibility of sharing Christ among these people group was challenging. It was very challenging for us. How do you do it? How do you get involved in that? And then, maybe sadly, but last, is this picture of what are we call unreached, unengaged peoples. Unreached, unengaged peoples. These guys are not only unreached, but there's nobody targeting them. There's nobody even thinking about them. There's so many people groups in the world to look at, we don't have time to get into that area of the world. And it's complicated. There are people groups that we've discovered as we've walked along that live in these communities that we're, where we live that are massive people groups that actually don't even have an identifier as a name, but they have a unique language, a unique culture. Nobody can work with them, but they're called, and actually in, the, um, in, a, in one of our countries, they've only got 56 registered languages, or 56 registered people groups, although there are over 400 languages spoken in that one country, which means the government has said, let's just minimize the people groups. Let's just call them all 56. And now that country is now trying to say, let's just forget that 56, let's just make them all one. Let's just make them all us. We'll eliminate their culture, their life, their history, and their language. That's a tragedy that's taking place around the world. And it's one of these situations where these guys are the neediest of the needy, the unengaged. There's no missionary. There's no mission agency. There's nobody talking about it. We shared a little bit earlier today that when we were actually talking in our second class, we did our workshop, some of you were in there, was that train ride I did with my wife and I, my, my, I did with when I was in uh, Turkey, when a guy opened up a map and showed me Buryatia on the map, the first time I'd ever heard of it, first time I'd ever seen that. And here we are thinking about this thing. And my question was, is anybody trying to, like, do it, does anybody even live here? And he said, I have no idea if people live there, but I can tell you this, there's no agency, there's no Christian, there's nobody trying to reach these guys. And that's what I believe the Apostle Paul was seeking. That's what he was talking about when he said, I, will, I make it my ambition to preach Christ where, where he's never been proclaimed. One of the challenges to all of this is it's a task that's really hard. There are things that will hinder and make it very difficult. There's Religious cultural situations, there's, there's um, government situations taking place, political situations taking place, history of relationships between our country and another country that cause animosity between those countries, making it extremely difficult to get into these areas. The reason why these people groups are still unreached today is because it's hard. 
It's just hard. You've got to find people willing, willing to allow their lives to be used for his glory, but to move to places where it just doesn't seem fun to go to. It just doesn't seem like it's an opportunity that would make, like, make sense for me in my life. It just doesn't seem like it's something that would matter. We have to go to places and just trust the Lord that God and his grace and his glory will allow us to see a work take place. It's hard to find people to do that. But God is allowing those things to happen. This right here is a picture that I saw in the magazine or the, in the, in the um, encyclopedia. And this is the picture of the Buryat guy. Now, one of the things I actually found out when I was in Buryatia was one of the things that they, they told me was, did you know you're not the first foreigner here? It wasn't a competition, really. So I was like, you know, no, I didn't know that. And they're like, yeah, there was a foreigner here before. And you see that rock in the middle of town? There was a big, huge rock in our area where we lived. By the way, the Buryat people, about 2 million of them in our, in our area. In, in our republic, we had about 130,000 deaf people in our area. So it wasn't like, I, I pictured Siberia as like being empty. It wasn't so empty. It was like there were people there. And this guy was out there, and they said, there's a rock in the middle of town here, and this is a crying rock. And they didn't really know much about what we were doing there, and they were saying, but they knew that I was talking about the Lord, and they're like, this guy also was a, was, a, was a believer like you. He didn't say word Christian, but they said, they're also believers like you. And I said, oh, really? And he said, yeah, that's called the crying rock. And I said, oh, why do they call it the crying rock? And they said, because um, this lady, the lady who lived here, her husband, they moved here, and she used to cry all the time until he murdered her and murdered their kids. And I was like, oh. And he's like, are you, are you part of that group? And I'm like, no, 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 we're... we're, we're <laughs> We're a different agency, completely different agency than that one. So, I, so I, we didn't know much about the story at all. And then several years later, we saw churches established among the Bariat people. We saw God raising up churches. We moved to another part of Siberia, a place called um, Hordensk, which is the far south. We started a church in Hordensk, and they actually invited us in there, and this farmer gave us land. Now, I actually learned the name of this guy. His name is Stalibras, Edward Stalibras, but I didn't know anything about Stalibras. And we got land, and we got land on our property, we had the graves of the wife and the children where, we, where he lived. So this guy had actually, Edward Stalibras, had gone out in 1840 to plant a church among the Buryats. It would have been the first church among the Buryats. He went out there without any hope of ever returning home. His wife died, his, like seven of his children died out there to see the gospel come to a people group called the Buryats. He translated the Bible into the Buryat language. And before he was able to get it to them, the government kicked him out of the country and he was never able to get back. And the first and only Buryat believer wrote this letter. And I'll let you guys read the letter. I got this letter out of the London Missionary Society letter. And it's a letter from a Buryat back in 1840. We read that though the Jews often saw Christ in the temple preaching to the people, they could not take him. And why? Because his hour had not yet come. Now the time for the breakup of this mission has come. Oh, to think that the few sheep here are to go shepherdless is indeed very sorrowful. But so it is. We are now, ha- we are now to have no pastor. While we are without anyone to make God's words known, we know a voice is heard from heaven. That voice makes known these words. I will not leave you comfortless. This declaration inspires us with hope. Oh, my dear brother, do not forget us. Pray for us. Think whether you, might, whether you could not send to us here another teacher who is a true believer in Christ. May some favor be shown to us. It may not be while I live that a missionary should be sent, but to a future generation, someone will assuredly be sent. A time will come when a missionary will be considered by my people as an angel sent from heaven. And, the, and the, the word which he makes known will enter their hearts as if an angel blew with a trumpet. A time will come when my people will awaken. And in order to listen to God's commands, little children will call, fall, will, will call one another, and old men with joyful faces will assemble, and the preacher's face will shine, and many will gather unto him. At present, all is dead, all is different. Such a time my friends and myself shall never see. He died about a year after he wrote this. 150 years later, the Lord 
randomly laid on our hearts to reach the Buryat people with a little picture and, a, and, a, and a, an encyclopedia to go to Buryat people. You sometimes wonder, how do, I actually, how do people ever get to those places? And how does God's, and God's time frame work? And how does prayer work? It's an amazing thing, the way God works. I really believe that part of our, the reason why we got there was because of this guy's prayer back 150 years before we arrived. An answer to prayer, right? An answer to prayer. I'm going to just slip ahead here. One of the things that I think it's important for us to understand is that even though we don't always know the people groups that we're trying to work in and understand those things, one more. This place right here, just give you a little picture here. This place right here was a place that when I was 17 years old, my family always told us as, as kids growing up, we had to do a mission strip. We didn't get to, we had to. And you got, and you, so we had to go somewhere. And I, we had to go because my family were all missionaries. We had to go to a place where my family lived which would be like, okay, so they were going to like, I couldn't go with YWAM or something like that. I had to go with something that would be like really working and things like that. Not that they don't work in YWAM. That was not a slam on YWAM. I'm just saying, just in general, you had to really, so I was like, oh man. So we went out there and I ended up building an airstrip for my uncle. And I was down there building, I was 17 years old. I wasn't walking with the Lord at all. 17 years old, I was building this airstrip and a guy out in the jungle had been building an airstrip with this place right here to work with the Maku. And this is from a book that was written. But this place was where these Indians, the Maku Indians, they were wild and they had killed a lot of people. Um, in, in the past, and they had been killed as well. One of the missionaries, while he was out there working on this airstrip, got shot in the throat by, by, by an arrow and almost died. They had to resuscitate him. There was poison on it. They had to resuscitate him like three times. And then they had to put him on a canoe and go seven days out by canoe back to this base. They flew him back out to the States. Now, I was just finishing my airstrip up in this mountain area, and they were like, was, is, and they got all the base together, this mission base together. They said, is there anybody that can go in and help Steve on this, on this work out there? And I'm like, yeah. I can go. It'd be great. I'm 17. This is like the dream of my life. I'm the Tarzan. And the guy's are like, is anybody able to go? Come on, is anybody in our group able to go? And they're all like, we're really busy. I'm like, oh, I can go. You know, and then they're like, any human in this group? Is anybody that's, that's like a normal person? Can anybody go? And it's like, yeah, me. And so finally, like out of desperation, like, okay, we'll let that guy go. And so I got to go. And so I started to work out there. And it was like, I arrived out in, in, in Columbia, South America, in this jungle to work with the Maku. And I'm building an airstrip every day. And literally every morning, I'd get up at like 4 a.m. We'd hunt for our food. We'd go in and work on this airstrip all day long. And I did this for almost a year. And I was like working on this thing and we were getting along the times there and, and the Maku, you could see them in the jungles at times and things like that. And I remember talking to this missionary one time and saying, Steve, wh why do you do this? Like those guys don't even like you. <laughs> they don't like you at all. And like they're screaming at us at night. They're shooting at us at night. We actually had this bright idea, which I say that now because I was a kid, I could be able, I, you can judge people that are older than you when you're like 17. So I'm like, they, we gave them PVC pipes for their blowguns, right? So we lived out on the water on this houseboat because the, the Indians would shoot their arrows at us and their blow darts at us. So we gave them PVC pipes. Guess what could hit the, the house now? We, at nighttime, they would come to the shore, they'd yell us, and we could hear the ting, 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 ting on our roof. They were shooting blow darts at us. And I'm like, they don't like us. They don't like us here. And he goes, if I was here because they liked me, I'd have been gone a long time ago. I'm here because Jesus Christ loves them. I'm here because Jesus Christ loves them. And so I, I kept working on this thing all the time. And one day I, I hurt my foot really bad and I swam into shore. I was swimming, I was swimming into shore. And I had a piece of wood that jammed way up on my foot. We pulled the wood out, part of it, but not all of it. And about a week and a half later, it extremely infected. And there was, it was, you know, it was all the humidity, all the things that went on. So it started to turn in, in, in colors. And so I knew I had to leave. I started getting sicker and sicker. So I had to go up by seven days by canoe. And by the time I got back, I was really sick. And they gave me antibiotics, and I, would, I was kind of like doing rehab before I came back out to the Maku area again. And this Guaybero chief was sitting there, he was watching me, 
and I was watching these guys, these tribe, play soccer. And I'm sitting there watching them, and he walks up to me and he says, so why are you here? And I, I could speak some Spanish, but I was learning a little bit of Guayabero when I was there. So I was, he couldn't speak Spanish or English, but he could speak Guayabero. So we're, he's trying to ask me questions in Guayabero, and I'm answering. He says, why are you here? Again, why am I here? I'm like, well, you know, we're building an airstrip. Why? For the plane, the missionary plane to fly in. Why? And I'm like, um, you know, because uh, they, they need to hear about God. And he's like, who's going to tell the way better about God? And I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm 17 years old, not me. i got a life to live. Like, I never even heard of you guys before. I never heard of the Maku. Like, I've never heard of either one of these guys. I, I have things to do with my life. This doesn't matter. Like, really, it doesn't matter to me. I'm like, I, I feel for you guys. I feel bad for you guys. I have empathy for you guys. I know it must be hard, but I've got a life to live. There are things that I want to do with my life that have nothing to do with this place. So I'm, no, I'm not going to be the one to go there. I didn't say that to him, but I thought about it. Well, I came back home, and the Lord really began to convict me of that as I grew older. That was in my mid-20s, the Lord got a hold of my life. And I was sharing this story, in, um, I was sharing this story when I was in uh, Florida once, and, uh, and, and I was just kind of speaking at this church, and I was sharing this story. And after I got into speaking, this lady runs up to me, and she said, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. She grabbed me and hugged me. And I was like, you know, from my sermon? <laughs> or what is this? And she's like, for what you did. And I said, what did I do? She goes, I'm a maku. Missionaries came, and they learned our language. They learned our culture. They gave me a Bible. They gave us a Bible. They taught us how to read and how to live. And they shared their lives with us. And, sh- and I, I came to faith in Jesus Christ because of you. And I said, well, not really me, but somebody else did it. Somebody else did it. I just built an airstrip. I just built an airstrip. And she says, right now I'm in medical school. I'm at the University of Miami Medical School. One day I want to go back and sh- continue to share Christ to my people and continue to actually, actually impact my people for good and for the gospel. But thank you for that. This is the beauty of the gospel right here. It's the picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It can transcend boundaries and borders and lines. Christ actually is not contained in that. And sometimes we think about people, we don't think about them as an individual like this lady right here. We don't think that's an unreached people group right there that's now reached the gospel of Jesus Christ because somebody went and learned their language, learned their culture, translated the Bible. That's what it takes. It's an extraordinary effort to go do that, but God is calling his church to be a part of that. That's the challenge for us today. And as I've walked through this weekend, as I've heard people speaking, I'm thinking to myself, this is exactly exactly what the church of Jesus Christ needs to hear, that this is the task of the church. It's not the task of somebody who has a desire that way. It's the task of his church, of his body, it's so exciting to see this number of people here on a Saturday morning when you'd be doing so many different things. But to hear about one thing, to seeing Christ's name proclaimed to the nations. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your glory. We thank you for the privilege we have to share and communicate truth to those around us that have never heard. And God, I just ask you, just give us life and breath to continue moving forward so that we could see more people come to know you so that we could be a church that's so empowered and so excited about what you're doing, God, that we'll give up everything for the sake of knowing you and being a part of what you do. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.